Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here, getting ready to do another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. This is podcast number two in the series I'm doing with Shane Mahoney. Uh, hopefully you listened to uh, episode number one. It was the introduction and background to the North American model. Uh, today we're doing number two of surely five podcasts, maybe more, but for sure there will be five. So this is episode number two. Uh, Shane's on the other line. We're going to get into the topic of uh, the the actual pillars, the, the some call them the, the seven sisters or the tenants that are the, the foundation of the North American model. The two we're going to cover today is that science is the proper tool for the discharge of wildlife policy. And the second one is wildlife is considered an international resource. And I think you're going to find that Shane has an awful lot of perspective on this. Um, just a remarkable, just a fountain of knowledge. Uh, I, <laughs> whenever I have questions on the North American model, how it applies, if it does apply, uh, he's the guy I shoot an email to or, or who I call. So uh, I appreciate that he's uh, taken the time to be with us and, and do this project with us. Uh, but I want to make sure that we let you know the companies that support this project help make it possible. Uh, Loophole Optics, uh, if you go to loophole.com, You'll see all the great stuff they have and know that them and pretty much every one of these partners that I'll mention, they are huge supporters in the work we do and the work that Shane does because they understand the the value of conservation, uh, the value of this North American model that is really the basis for, for all that we love. So uh, also Nosler Ammunition, uh, if you go out to Nosler.com, you'll see all the great great ammunition components bullets other stuff that they have and know that uh, they're also a big supporter of of hunting shooting um uh, public access <laughs> i could go on and on it would sound like a broken record but then i i mentioned it for each one of these but just know that they all share that value uh mr ranch backpacks uh if you haven't uh, I'd suggest you go out to their website and check out their packs. Uh, you're you're going to see uh, an amazing product made by what I call the the madman of uh, the backpack world, Dana Gleason. A uh, long time ago, Dana was on the podcast. Remarkable guy. Uh, and if you want to save 10% on your Mr. Ranch pack, uh, I'm going to give you a little insider tip here because I like you to save money. And here's how you do it. You go to GoHunt.com, you click on their gear shop, and I think it, you hit Brands. And under the brands, they list all the brands that they carry. Hit Mystery Ranch, put a you know a Metcalf or a, you know maybe a Beartooth in in your cart. And when you do, when you check out with promo code Randy, they'll give you ten percent off that pack and a whole lot of other things in your cart. So most everything that you buy from them will give you a ten percent discount by using 
promo code Randy. Uh, my buddy Corey Jacobson, uh, those of you who are into elk hunting, you know that he has the course as it relates to knowledge about elk hunting. If you want to save 20 bucks on his course, go out to elk101.com and click on University of Elk Hunting. When you sign up, use promo code Randy and he'll drop the price by 20 bucks. Uh, go Hunt uh, supports all things and everything that we do, that a lot of conservation groups do. Uh, and if you want to subscribe to their service uh, it's a service we use intensively uh, go out there and sign up for insider when you do and you use promo code randy they'll give you a 50 dollars credit in their gear shop and you'll get all their maps mobile maps desktop maps uh, you name it all kinds of things uh, draw odds evaluation of each state by species by unit um uh, e-scouting tools are now being out there out there uh all for the same price the price stays the same so use promo code randy when you sign up and they'll give you 50 dollars of credit in their gear shop and then we have our subscription model uh for those of you who are interested in no ads and interested in not having your personal information used uh go out to freshtracks.tv check it out uh hopefully you'll find it worth your money uh and uh You'll get some exclusive access to a lot of things we do, and uh, we'll appreciate the support. But with that, uh, got Shane here from Newfoundland uh, waiting on the other line. So I'm going to hit the button here, and when I do that, uh, we'll get to hear how things are going in Newfoundland today. But mostly we'll get to hear an awful lot of insight about these two tenets of the North American model. So appreciate you all being here. Well, folks, welcome to podcast number two as uh, Shane Mahoney uh, helps me and all of us get an even better understanding of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Shane, thanks again for being here. Thank you again for having me, Randy. Yeah, I hope you don't ever tired of uh, get tired of my impositions on your time and your, your uh, schedule. But. No, no. Uh, I'm just. Uh, I, I spend most of my days uh, wondering when will Randy call. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on! Now that's <laughs> that's one of the best jokes I've heard in 2022, Shane. That's that's a good one. But uh, well, for folks who are just chiming into this podcast, uh, Shane and I did a podcast uh, that's out there. It's it's called Episode One of the North American model. And in that one, uh, Shane went into a lot of history, a lot of background. Uh, I asked a lot of questions and we, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this again, Shane, because I think in these next three podcasts, we're going to really get into the pillars or the tenets of the model. Uh, and they're well described in the book that you and Dr. Geist, uh, published, or I guess, put together with a bunch of collaborators, however you want to say that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Anybody interested in it, you can Google that. It's at Amazon. It's published by Johns Hopkins Press. Uh, and it is well worth the read. So uh, let's, you want to just jump right into these, Shane? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. Okay. In this one, in this podcast, uh, episode number two, I think we'll 
we'll take the, on these first two tenets of the model because they kind of connect when we talk about science as the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. And then, you know, science tells us that these species don't adhere to our geographic and political boundaries. So it is, I think, appropriate that science has shown us the value of looking at this uh, at wildlife as an international resource. Um, so those are two tenants that, that support this. And I just want to jump into the first one I mentioned uh, and give you the chance in the most simple terms to explain this tenant that says science is the proper tool for discharge of wildlife policy. Well, to go back to the beginning of um, the foment that led urgently and immediately to the establishment of some of these principles, when the wildlife depletion was sort of at its, at its uh, peak or its nadir, however you wish to describe that, uh, late in the uh, 19th century and very early in the 20th, there was also at the same time um, you know, a growing awareness of the, uh, the science of natural history. And also, of course, the world was still being informed by this whole post-industrial revolution application of new ideas and scientific knowledge. And there was also, of course, the profound implications of Darwinism, this mm -hmm. new enlightening kind of idea that through careful study and intellectual uh, effort, you know, essentially a completely new view of the world in a way, you know, could, could come forward. And intellectuals on, on uh, all sides uh, of, the, of the Atlantic, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, you know, were feasting on this information. Mm -hmm. and, um, and amongst some of the leading uh, exponents for the North American model as it came to be were people like Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot and others, um, you know, who were very well read and who were reading, of course, this literature, this literature of science and this literature of Darwinism. And the whole idea was taking hold very deep in, a, in American culture, obviously in some sectors more than others. Um, you know, and often in the elites of cities, of course, where people had more leisure time. And mm -hmm. in academic institutions, there was this growing idea that we need to apply scientific knowledge to the understanding of major problems. And, of course, America and Canada were both uh, throwing up, um, you know, individuals and institutions that were, you know, very preoccupied with understanding the natural world. And these people, you know, gained great notoriety. And so you look at people like Roosevelt, who was a very good taxonomist, a very good birder, for example, extraordinarily adept birder. Um, and people like John Muir and, you know, people, you know, and people like Clifford Sifton in Canada and others. You know, there was this, this atmosphere of science. And so it just made absolutely uh, absolute sense that when the model started to become sort of you know, put together in a sense with these various pieces that there had to be a way of deciding, okay, how, what will we do with this wildlife? Should we be able to recover it? Uh, 
And how are we going to allocate access to this wildlife, which we want this to be a public trust resource, which means essentially everybody can have access to it. How are we going to determine the laws and the policies? And also, how are we going to restore these populations and the habitats they habitats that they need? And therefore, the idea was launched upon that uh, this would be through the application of science. Now, this in some ways has been identified as part of the Roosevelt Doctrine, as it's known, where okay. he where he himself, you know, was um, that this idea of conservation through wise use, <coughs> excuse me, as he called it, uh, you know, with a public trust resource, this had to have some sort of guiding knowledge by professionals to actually enable us to to move forward. Um, and so this idea of relying on science was very, very close to Roosevelt's heart, but to other people who were involved, involved in it. And um, it made uh, wonderful sense. And of course, the term science was used by Dr. Geist in describing this. But I think uh, if you look at some of the readings, you know, it's clear that Roosevelt and others were, were thinking about best knowledge Science was right. a great term for that, uh, yep. and uh, but that of course meant that we were looking at sort of Western European knowledge and views. And don't forget, the Europeans had already, in the cases of things like forestry, the Prussian forestry school in particular, they were already applying scientific principles and standards to timber production and wildlife regulation and so on on private estates and private lands. <clears throat> so this was another connection with that idea that experts really had to lead this. And it couldn't just be a hunter or an angler or somebody who was interested. You know, we needed real experts in this business. And, of course, um, we were then seeing as well in the United States and in Canada, you were seeing the rise of some of the academic institutions they had been yeah. around for a while, some of them, and they were developing disciplines in geology, as uh, you know, George Bird Grinnell was trained in. Uh, they were developing things with regard to forestry, and eventually they started to develop things with wildlife. So this is a long-standing pillar. This is not something that emerged in the 50s or 60s or you know, the 90s or something. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that we would rely on expert knowledge to guide the recovery and sustainable use, wise use of wildlife was there for the very early stages of this work. I may say, however, uh, that you know, um, while there was a great experience there were great exponents for the application of science into this business. Uh, we often hear this di dichotomized as, you know, oh, some groups who don't like something, they, they only react on emotion. We want everybody mm -hmm. to react on science. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> two things about that that I think bear intrusion to the discussion. Number one is these people who were talking about relying on science, like Gifford Pinchot, Grinnell, Roosevelt, et cetera, et cetera, you couldn't have much more passionate people than they were. So if anybody gets the idea that because they were calling for science, they were going around looking like 
you know, the classic lab guy with a, with a, with a white coat and round glasses or something like that, <laughs> you know, they need to give that up. I mean, Roosevelt was out climbing big trees with, 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 with John Muir during thunderstorms and stuff like this. Right. So, yeah. but what they were saying was, was my passion is not quite enough. And you have to understand that some of them like Grinnell, like Pinchot, like Hornaday, like Roosevelt, these were fantastic naturalists in their own right. Yeah, you know they, they they had taken enormous amounts of time to study the natural world, um, so much so that you know it's a well known fact that Teddy Roosevelt could identify virtually every bird by its song, and in fact was so excited when a certain bird would return for its first performance in the springtime, he would sometimes break up cabinet meetings and have everybody run out on the lawn to see the latest thrush that had arrived. That, that's that's who he was, you know. Yeah. No, so yeah. you know. So, I mean, I think the, the, the idea of science is deeply embedded, but that doesn't mean that passion isn't there as well. And I must make remark here that there was an antecedent to all of this that very few people know about. Uh, his name was George Perkins Marsh. Yeah. And he was an American polymath who, who, who published a book called Man and Nature in the 1940s, I think it was, which you can still purchase yep. to this day in new editions. Yeah. Uh, he spoke seven languages. He became an ambassador to European countries, um, many, many things. But he had looked at this issue of environmental loss and the collapse of civilizations. And he was also, you know, calling for a much more informed and educated view of things. And Gifford Pinchot, uh, for his 21st birthday, Gifford Pinchot's parents gave him a copy of George Perkins Marsh, Marsh's book, Man and Nature. So you begin to see, you know, some of the intellectual steps and influences that eventually gave rise to this idea of science. And then, of course, this was fundamentally and forcibly reinforced in the 1930s by people like Aldo Leopold, you know, writing their classic works on wildlife management and so on. So very early in the game, uh, this issue of science and expert knowledge was raised. It had clear European contexts, but it had North American context as well. Some of the leaders of the model were enthralled with science and natural history in their own right, and were very, very capable individuals. And then that got passed on into the next wave of conservationists, such as uh, the Leopolds and, of course, many others at that time. Yeah, I, I, I'm always fascinated by how some of that evolves and if you go back and read many of the writings of those people you mentioned in the late 1800s. So I think Darwin came out with his book on the origin of species in 1859 or 1860, something like that. Yep. And even at the time when uh, Grinnell was uh, at the helm of, at the beginning when he started at Forest and Stream, the predecessor to uh, Field and Stream today, uh, in the 1880s, he was being labeled and tagged as a Darwinist. And yep. so I, I throw that out there that here we have some, you know, 170 years, 160 years later, we have a pretty good feel that Darwin knew what he was talking about. Uh, we have bodies of science that have emerged and been built from his original ideas. But it was 30 to 40 years before it was popular to espouse what Darwin had written. And 
So I, I, I want, <laughs> I want to give that context because everywhere from that point to where we are today, there will be pieces of science or findings and research that may make us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that does not deny that they are true or no. that, that they have relevance and, and they explain some things that we, for whatever reason, may not want to, to adhere to. And so I, I, I don't want people to think that science was just this, you know, always accepted as, oh, yeah, sure, okay, we, we believe that. It's always been tested. It's always had societal pushback. Uh, there's been cultural and societal norms that sometimes have rejected science, even though there it is right in front of you, mm-hmm. almost undeniable. And I think we could look at a lot of things in our world today where we've been presented with findings and we're skeptical. And there will be things presented to us going forward that probably are factual and very correct. But because of our our norms, our way of life, maybe we reject some of that as our first response. But it does not change the fact, as proven through Darwin, that it really is true. <laughs> we- well, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. I, I mean, I think the other thing about science that people have to remember is that um, you know science is is simply a way of seeing the world, um, and it's it's a way of seeing the world that's based on empiricism. It's based on experiment. It's based on proving uh, the false uh, options that are out there, and. Um, one of the historical departures we can talk about here is, of course, it was very interesting that the the uh, indigenous knowledge, the local knowledge of indigenous peoples and local peoples also, not non-indigenous local peoples, uh, was often, as you know, science sort of gained its ascendancy, Western science we mean, um, you know, uh, that knowledge was often sort of, you know, sort of held down or, or looked upon as not quite as, you know, rigorous and so on and so forth. And that trend, you know, really has continued for a very, very long time. Now, at the present day, a hundred years later, we see a, a very massive international effort to try to bring that indigenous knowledge and local people's knowledge to bear on questions. So that's an important historical trend that we need to realize all of a sudden we had a phenomenon that sort of negated a body of knowledge. And now a hundred years later, we are starting to bring that knowledge back into play. Uh, So for people who want the world to stay as it always has been, this is just another example that that's just not going to happen. The second thing is science is no different than any other bit of information. You know, um, just because it's published in a peer reviewed journal or just because it comes out from somebody, you know, an academic position, that does not mean that people will necessarily accept it. Uh, and it. And the other side of that is that, uh, as with any other kind of knowledge, such as hearsay or my opinion or my uh, exper- experience in life saying something or other that of any of us, um, you know, people will take from science what they want. Yeah. So if the science agrees with their worldview of things a lot, they will say, hey, that's great science, and we should manage on science. 
But if the science says something else, they might not be so quick to say, let's manage on science. So let's take predators, for example. If we want right. to have a, a flashpoint here, it's a great flashpoint. <laughs> predators are always a great flashpoint. You know? uh, so, you know, we, we started out in the early part days of the model with experiments like the KBAB plateau. Roosevelt and others, uh, leaders at the time, even though they were believing in science, said simply predators are bad. Uh, by and large, uh, we need to get them all out of there. Uh, used to be a lot of mule deer in this place. Uh, let's get the mule deer populations back up. Uh, we won't hunt them. We won't, and we'll shoot all the predators. We'll just let them build up. And of course, they built up and built up, as, this, as we well all know, to the point where they began to simply starve to death and were found as emaciated animals hanging over barbed wire fences in their dramatic efforts to sort of escape where they were. And, um, you know, that was an early lesson to indicate that predators in some mixture actually played a role in the ecosystem and that if you completely took them out of there, you would have consequences that you didn't anticipate. Well, as we know, that was in, you know, 100 years ago. As we know to this day, if we talk about wolves or if we talk about lynx or mountain lions or bobcats or grizzly bears or whatever it might be, all of a sudden the heat the heat in the debate tends to really get elevated, whether that's in North America or Europe or anywhere else around the world. And yeah. so if we have science that comes out published in the same journals, perhaps, that say, you know, predators have a real place to play in the ecosystem and should remain an integral part, let's say. And then we have another peer-reviewed paper that comes out, perhaps in the same journal or another one that says, you know, Predators are responsible for decimating the elk herds in, uh, you know, such and such a, a state or in such a park or whatever it might be. You know, depending where you sit in the spectrum of opinion on these matters, largely driven by our, our emotions, and we're all driven by them, Randy. I've, oh, never, yeah. met, I've never met a human being yet <laughs> not driven by their emotions. Um, and so, you know, and I hope I don't ever meet one. I don't want to meet that person. But anyway... Depending where we sit and where our emotional, you know, kind of trajectory is, we can easily accept one of those and say, see, the science says that. Right. And then somebody else says, see, the science says that, even though the science is saying two different things. So just because my comment here about the model is just because we talk about science doesn't mean that all science agrees with itself, number one any more than any other body of opinion does. There's contradictory stories in the science line, too. Number two, that uh, some people uh, simply won't accept it, whether it's scientific or not. And number three, people will parse the science to accept what they think agrees with them, but not necessarily welcome the science that uh, does not agree with their position. Still in all... This is a vital component of the North American approach, that expert knowledge is how I would describe it, of all kinds, should be brought to bear. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good segue into the, the next point or question. Uh, and from a practical standpoint, Shane, does science still form the basis of North American wildlife management? When we have such a complicated world today and we're trying to listen to so many perspectives, does, does science at times get 
pushed by the wayside or maybe as you've illustrated just in your last comment there maybe we cherry pick it to whatever we like but is it safe to say that science is still that foundational tool i think it's safe to say that the 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 institutions that we built the state agencies and the academic institutions and the federal agencies you know that rely heavily on science whether it's usda u.s forest service u.s fish and wildlife service u.s geological service whatever um and the state agencies themselves you know they do work within frameworks of science and much of that science of course has traditionally been in the areas of wildlife biology itself and habitat relationships but that has exploded or diversified very much in the last 25 to 30 years to also include the issues of human dimensions of course you know what do people feel what is their reaction and science has been applied to that to a great extent so i would say that there is still a very significant reliance on science for many of the sort of standard policies of quota setting and things of this nature for hunted species, et cetera, or for understanding the, you know, where species are relative to being listed as endangered or what their habitat requirements are, questions like that. However, um, I think we are living in uh, a, a, an age of discord. I, I use that term very deliberately. And one of the things that's introducing discord is the fact that while not everybody can really be an expert, everybody can really appear as an expert because they can, <laughs> because they can get their viewpoints out there in so many ways. And, yeah. and in some cases, the non-expert can talk about something, and if they do it in a certain way and have a certain following, they might reach millions of people. And a real expert, for example, talking about something might be just only a handful. I think there is a growing mistrust, if I could say this, of science as overall, uh, in the sense that more and more people are, of course, aware of science, and they're also aware that science, too, has its shortcomings. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not uh, the be-all and end-all. And some people know, of course, that... Uh, Science itself has politics embedded in it. Uh, the very things that are funded, you know, are often, um, you know, influenced by what the political priorities of the day might be. So, yeah. therefore, we are getting some science on some things, but we're getting far less science on others. That is generating a certain level of skepticism about the science that we do read about. Uh, but I think more and more there is also this denial of the expert. Right. You know, that is very prominent in, in, in society today, that the experts really are not real specialists anymore, um, and that even medical doctors, you know, can be challenged, whether they're surgeons or dietitians or whatever it might be, by, I don't know, some bizarre claim by some person, you know, concocting some amazing organic uh, sort of uh, shaky that, uh, you know, <laughs> that if you, drink, if, you, if you drink it, you bulge muscles and you, mm. you increase your lung capacity by 50% and you never die. So, you know, there yeah. is a certain, uh, there is a certain uh, endemic challenge now to the idea of science. Yeah. And you still have people today who, you know, are part of a group who never accepted science. Mm -hmm. 
So there still are people today who would deny Darwin's thinking, of course. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so along this trajectory, you have groups of people who maintained a certain worldview and are probably going to maintain it till they die and will probably pass on that particular worldview. One of the, one of the better ways, I think, of approaching this is to say that I, I think what we probably desire, I don't want to get too far ahead into the next podcasts, but perhaps one of the things we really desire is to see the best knowledge of all kinds applied to make the best decisions for wildlife. But yeah. I think uh, there definitely is um, both a resilient component of science being applied in our wildlife management uh, institutions, but there is a growing um, there's a growing uh, doubt uh, around the role of experts and the role of science by a growing number of people. I would say that's true. Yeah, and I. I... People are going to think all I do is sit around and read old history stuff. But like you said in the last podcast, Shane, you're a big history buff, as am I. Uh, and I would say the two areas of my history, I love indigenous people history. Uh, and I love history of our conservation in this country. And to, to kind of touch on how societal pressures influence either the science itself or how the science is accepted. I go back to George Perkins Marsh, who you mentioned. Uh, towards the end of the Civil War in 1864, he publishes the book Man in Nature. And a lot of people would say that was where the conservation movement kind of was articulated because it, if I had to use one sentence to explain what that book is, it's, you know, is the behavior of man on this planet sustainable? Uh, and so we emerge from the post-Civil War period with full-on manifest destiny. And all Marsh was writing about is man's impact on the earth and can we sustain it? And... At the time, it was taken as blasphemy. How, how dare you challenge the idea that man could damage the earth in, in any long-term fashion? Uh, so he wrote about it very well, but what we don't hear about are his critics uh, at, his, at his time. Uh, fortunately, uh, his, his writings were picked up by people with platforms like Grinnell and others. Uh, but I, I look at what the public pressures were, and I try to say, how could, at any time in human civilization, how could you deny that human activity could disrupt or impact the landscape? But a lot of people, because it did not fit their societal collective view of what they wanted for this country, what they wanted for themselves, they wanted to, <laughs> to, to, to debate what Marsh had written. And so I, I, I throw that out there as, the, as some context that this has always been the case when you have society with its ideas, its priorities, and you have scientists who try to be agnostic as it relates to a lot of that. And when they don't mesh real well, uh, sometimes we might end up looking like fools 50 years from now by 
ostracizing the person who was telling us what we maybe needed to hear but didn't want to hear. Well, I think that's true, but of course science is not perfect either, and in some cases science makes predictions that that don't come true, obviously. As I said, science is not perfect knowledge. Science is just a different way of of seeing the world. Um, But I think one of the principles, I believe, is that people disseminate all kinds of knowledge and absorb all kinds of knowledge based on an internal mechanism of adjudication, acceptance, rejection, which is made up of many complicated parts, the family they grew up in, the community they grew up in, the life experience Mm -hmm. they have had. Uh, And there are other factors that might be at play. Are they deeply religious? Do they believe in a kind of classic kind of religion in some way, an interpretation of life in that way? All of these things affect how we accept you know, uh, science or any other body of knowledge. And of course, then there's the other issue around science and how much is it being applied. There are critics of the model, of course, who have, you know, said that, you know, we don't really use science, that we make all kinds of, you know, uh, allocations of resources and so on, of course, and we don't have, uh, you know, all the information available to us. It is certainly true that many decisions are made by state agencies in the absence of what we might call perfect knowledge. There's no doubt about that. But uh, it's also uh, a reality that those agencies have to make decisions about important issues. Uh, They can't just, for example, completely suspend all hunting because, you know, they say, well, we're really not quite sure whether the population is at, you know, level (laughs) X or level Y. So, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's accurate enough to say that there isn't always the best science. But I don't think it's fair to say, and therefore, you know, the agencies, by trying to make decisions, are somehow, uh, you know, avoiding or abrogating their positions, you know, or their, their, their public trust responsibilities. Another point with regard to science is, of course, this question of how much is enough and where mm-hmm. does the money come from for how much <laughs> is enough. Some people will say, well, I need a huge amount more science. Some people will say, well, we only need a certain amount of science on these particular aspects, and then we have a reasonable uh, path to move forward. So the whole issue of science within the model is, a, is an important one, um, and the principle of using best knowledge, I think, is a sacred one. I think we should use the best knowledge that we have, but that should not only be scientific knowledge, it should be other forms of knowledge. Um, and I think that the thing we ought to be more uh, sensitive to, in fact, is this idea that almost anybody can be an expert. Yeah. <clears throat> and anybody yeah. can pronounce it. They say it enough on social media or whatever. It's got to be believable. I mean, this is, a, this is leading the world, in my view, into a very dangerous position. Yeah. And it does make it harder, Randy. I mean, in fairness to people... You know, you hear this idea of fake news and all of that kind of stuff. It's become very popular as a term. But it does make it difficult for people, because there's so much information, to know what, in fact, is true. If I was a citizen and not an expert in wildlife biology, and I'm just a citizen who has an interest in it because I love wildlife, for example, you know, it's very hard for me, I think, to then sit down and look at all this predator-prey issues and really understand, you know, what the truth is here. 
um, and what the reality is here, because there is a lot of conflicting information. And emotionally, you know, people are going to react to science based on not only what it says, but simply what they want to accept. So let's take something like <clears throat> grizzly bears. Yeah. <laughs> so grizzly bears are one of the most extraordinary forms of life on this entire planet. I think almost anybody who's ever seen one, witnessed one, would probably agree with that. They are, if, if you're not impressed by a grizzly bear, there's something wrong with your wiring. You know, you need to get, <laughs> yeah. you, you need to get checked out real fast. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and so they are all of that, and they are violent and ferocious at times, and they are difficult to handle, and they do own the landscape they're in because there's nothing else going to give them any trouble, right? Yeah. It's their hood, so to speak, in the modern parlance. You know, they're from yeah. the hood. They own this place. Yeah. Um, and so we have situations in a number of states and in Canadian provinces where, you know, grizzly bears, uh, sometimes it's individual bears, but sometimes it can be a number of them, they get into spaces where conflict with humans occur. It can be over domestic animal depredation. It can be over attacks on people directly in some circumstances, or it can just be invasive uh, activities that make people fearful of going into places they love or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so we end up in situations where state agencies then, often with, again, imperfect knowledge, and science, not knowing exactly how many they have or where they are or whatever, they have to go and take some of these bears and say, well, okay, the only thing we can do, we don't want to kill these nuisance, in quotation marks, bears, which is a strange term when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, these nuisance bears, we don't want to take these nuisance bears. I mean, you know, if you're described as a nuisance for doing what comes naturally to you, then I guess we're all nuisances. But anyway, <laughs> leave that term around for a moment. You know, they take these nuisance bears and then they decide, okay, now we have to bring them somewhere, Randy. All right. Now we have to bring them somewhere and we have to release them. Yeah. Now, a lot of people living in that area where they might be thinking about releasing them might well accept the science around grizzly bears. They're an able predator at low densities. They don't have, you know, terrible impact on game populations. Uh, you know, you can avoid them and still have enjoy the outdoors, whatever the best information is. But all of a sudden, somebody is coming and saying, you know what, uh, we're going to release this sow with cubs or this big old boar, and we're going to release him three miles up the road now from where you are because he's got lots of room to play in, and he's not going to come and sit by your barbecue tomorrow night and <laughs> wait for you to feed him hot dogs. Uh, and so all of a sudden, whatever knowledge you have is supplanted by a sense that you don't really feel comfortable having this big bear here. But the outcome of that is, eventually, a state agency has nowhere to put this bear. Right. And then they have to take this bear, and they have to put him in a culvert trap. And they have to lure him to the front or the, through the graded screen and put a pistol in there and kill him. Or yeah. they drug him and drag him out, put a pistol behind his ear, and kill him. Mm -hmm. So... This is a complicated piece of business. It's not just what knowledge we have, what science we have. 
It is what we do with the science that we have is also yep. another really important issue for the model. <clears throat> That's, uh, I could go on a, a big tangent related to that because so much of that happens right in my backyard here in Bozeman. Where of course it does. We Absolutely. do have... You know, if you want to call them trouble bears, nuisance bears, garbage yep. bears, whatever. Yep. Uh, and the science, you know, the, the societal pressures say no more pistol to the head yep. for for these bears. So they take them and release them to other places. And it ends up creating some very high densities. Yep. Uh, and most of these are young boars that are that have created yep. a problem. They're, they're, they're out trying yep. to find their way. They're not sufficient hunters or proficient hunters yet uh foragers and so they get released someplace where there's an artificial higher density now than what the habitat could be but there's a 20 year old boar there that's not real fond of this three-year-old boar that just got dropped in here and that outcome usually is slanted in the favor of the 20 year old bear yeah. Rather than the three-year-old bear. And so society has said, look, we don't mind if there's a fatality based on a 20-year-old boar killing a three-year-old boar, but we're just, we're not comfortable with our conservation officer or somebody else euthanizing this bear. Mm-hmm. And so again, we've, we've got societal pressures that are asking for one outcome. Or, or one way that probably ends up with the same outcome, that that young bear probably doesn't have a place on the landscape. Uh, well, and it's, it's I, a lot of societal stuff more than it is the science stuff. It's as you write in your next question here about how is the human dimension impacting all of this? Well, it, 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 first of all, the human dimension, I'll come to that. Uh, but let me just say this as well with regard to science and how it is used, and all that you describe about the dynamics between the bears is, of course, true. But it's also true that at some point, the state agencies, which are asked to rely on science, simply have to deal with this issue because there's these pressures upon them. But another thing that is happening, of course, as I said, science is a body of knowledge. It's a way, a way of seeing the world. People shouldn't just think about science as facts and figures. It's a worldview. Religion is a worldview. Science is a worldview. They don't have to be exclusive, but they can be quite different at times. Yeah. But what also happens is other worldviews arise and strengthen over time as well. And some of those new worldviews can challenge science as and challenge religion or challenge any other established orthodoxy. So, for example, we are definitely, right now, globally, experiencing a rise in empathy towards animals. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt in my mind about this whatsoever. We see it in every country, from China to Tajikistan to, to, uh, to the United States of America. And people get frustrated sometimes about this in the sense that people will make comments, oh, you know, more money was raised for the mountain lion mom and her cubs than were raised for the children of the person who was attacked by the mountain lion. You know, we have these kinds of stories that are right. out there. But the truth of the matter is that we are witnessing, for many complicated reasons, a tremendous outpouring of empathy for, for animals of all kinds, domestic and wild. Yep. 
And this is confronting the ideas of scientific management around hunting and a lot, lot of other things. But it's also challenging science in some very, very fundamental ways, in the sense that people are saying, I don't care what you scientists are saying. I have this emotional attachment to this animal or to these animals. I don't care what science is saying on, say, animal intelligence or some other aspect of, of, of animal ability. I know what they are capable of because, you know, I've, I've been with them. I've looked in their eyes, so to speak. I've seen this. This rise of animal empathy is, is, is a strong current in society all around the world. And it's confronting science in a very problematic way because scientists are saying, but this is what the facts say. You know, we yeah. should harvest or we should manage or we should do this or we should do that. Or we, you know, should remove the wolves, or we should keep the wolves, whatever it might be. And um, the people are saying, well, that's just not how I feel. And so <laughs> under other circumstances, I might accept science, but now under this circumstance, I won't. So I think we need to realize that there are also some fundamental shifts going on in society and societies around the world. Uh, and some of them are maybe in favor of science being accepted, and some of them are going to challenge science from a purely emotional basis, not so much to say, I'm going to debate you about your facts and figures. I'm just going to tell you, I don't care about your science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And right. that's a very different thing, right, about debating the science and just not caring about it. But yeah. um, this idea of human dimensions, Randy, that you mentioned, this is a, this is a very important thing. Um, we have always known that what people think and feel towards wildlife will have some kind of impact on the policies that we develop. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that people cared in the early days of the model, the early days of the recovery of wildlife, that was all emotional. You know, some of it was factual in the sense they saw wildlife disappearing, but what motivated them was they didn't want the wildlife to disappear. It was a purely emotional thing. Right. Um, and so this emotion, despite what a lot of people who say, let's quote the science, it was this emotion that launched all of this. Let us not forget that. It wasn't science. Yep. It was emotion that launched all of this great stuff that we now hold up as a, as a, as a, as a great model. Uh, <laughs> That's and, a good point. <laughs> you know, and so we, we, we've inherited this science-based model from a highly emotional bunch of people, but, you know, that's the reality of, the, of, the, of, of history. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so now today we have finally, uh, in the last 30 years or so, began to say to ourselves, well, all these emotions that people have, they matter, but we can't get a handle on them, you know. They're, they're all over the place. And so we need to bring, bring some structure to this. And this is really where the field of, of, of human dimensions began to emerge. And certain centers and certain personalities became the leading exponents of this work, of course. And now it has become sort of a standard layer in the science that we have. We have science on the biology of the animals, on ecosystem functions, and, and you know, we have this layer of the science of human emotion, human value systems, and what does that mean? And more and more, uh, this is an example of the adaptability of the infrastructure of the model 
uh, in the sense that the state agencies and also federal agencies uh, have begun to incorporate this new body of science more and more and more into their understandings of the total dynamic of you have land, you have wildlife, and you have people. And those three things circulate together to determine what you are going to be able to do as a manager. It's going to determine what's going to happen on that landscape. And it's also going to determine to some extent what species you focus on. Now, we talked a little bit earlier in the first podcast a little bit about this, you know, the emphasis on game species and so on and so forth that yep. uh, some people view uh, critically as a, as a shortcoming of the model may well be. We, we talked about why that happened and, you know, why it arose as it did. But let's take this issue of human dimensions in relation to that question to help build connectivity between these two podcasts. So <clears throat> people's values towards wildlife uh, involve many components. There's no doubt that there are a group of people who are very vested in the lives and future of so-called game or hunted species, i.e. hunters. But it would be totally untrue to say that that cadre of species, let's pick them, you know, the elk and the black bear and the and the wood duck and the mule deer and the white-tailed deer and and and, and the wild turkey and and the pronghorn and you know polar bears and you go on with the list. Many of those species are also the species that matter most to non-hunters. Yeah. It's not only the hunting public that had those animals as the iconic assemblage in their minds. Many of those species are the species that non-hunters love to see as well. They also, people who didn't hunt, often elevated a certain group of species to a, a very high level of priority. Let's not forget yeah. this. This no, is a truth. Sure. It's very yeah. much overlooked, but, it's, but it is the truth. It wasn't only the pressure from hunters that saw these game species as being you know, so fundamentally important. These were the iconic things people saw. The, the deer culture in America is an enormously deep culture. Mm-hmm. Well, deer is a big thing. Buckskins, you know, were part of your currency at one point in time. That's how you paid for things. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, so I mean, this this is a so that's one aspect I would raise. And the second aspect I would raise is this about this human dimensions and values towards wildlife. Um, you know, a lot of people will have other hierarchies in their mind. So people value wildlife. They love these species like bears and wolves and you know, deer and so on. Then there's another group of people who might be more expansive than that. They love, they love frogs and they love butterflies and they love uh, songbirds and so on. But, you know, we don't have this enormous wave of the public out there fighting for insects and, 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 and you know, in the gen- or snakes or, you know, or, or microbes or, you know, cicadas, you know, popping up out of the ground every 17 years. So, you know, my point here is that human dimensions also tends to expose a certain level of bias in us all, yeah. you know, and lays out those, 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 those buffets of behaviors and perspectives that people hold. Some people, you know, and we see it in the domain of hunting. Some people are okay hunting using certain instruments and they don't like other instruments. So they like, maybe they like, to PC people use rifles, but they're not so keen on people using bows, for example, or yeah. people don't like muzzle loaders because they're not as 
you know, they don't have the power over the distance in the same way that a rifle does and so on and so forth. We see a lot of values. And one of the things I think human dimensions does, while the biology of species is complicated enough, I think human dimensions shows us the enormous number of layers of sensitivity in human beings individually and in human beings as communities towards all kinds of conservation issues. How much land do you have to save in perpetuity? How much investment do you have to make to do your part for, say, climate change? How many ski hills do you really want to have in a vicinity versus leaving the mountain for elk and, and other alpine species and so on and so forth? You know, these are questions. How many beavers will you tolerate in your neighborhood if they flood your house Right. Uh, yeah. I, I love beavers. Uh, well, I love beavers. Love to look at them, smack their tails, build those dams. But holy crap, they just flooded my lawn. And now I got water in my basement. You know, it's a very dynamic thing. And it has added enormous amounts of assistance, I think, to trying to help the North American model adapt and remain relevant. This is one of the most important things about human dimension science. Understanding what people want, understanding what their values are, understanding what they have as a vision for themselves and wildlife in the same environment, understanding how much risk they will take to have wildlife in their environment, whether it's Lyme disease or whether it's grizzly bears or whatever it might be. Uh, these are really important issues that at one time, the, the infrastructure of the model, the agencies and federal and provincial and state weren't spending as much time worrying about, let's be frank. Yeah. It, it was their game to play. They were the experts, right? And they played it. But now the public is saying, I don't think so, because you know what? Ultimately, the resource is ours. This is a public trust resource. You're the custodians, we're the trustees. We are the people that it's being held in trust for, and we all want our say. And I think the human dimensions studies have really opened our minds. It's kind of like our institutions were operating very happily, and there was this big wall up there that had a big door in, in it, and no one ever open the door right? <laughs> and, and, and there was probably a few wise people who said whatever you do don't open that door you know yeah. let's keep let's keep operating in this space and lo and behold over time more and more people opened the door and what did they find this sea of humanity who had very different views and perspectives and some of these get very tension filled and they can involve simply people from another state with a cultural view, moving into another state that had a different cultural mm -hmm. view. And, yeah. now you and now you have cultural clashes going on. And I'm sure you know what I mean here. Absolutely. Uh, and that suddenly becomes a big issue that a state agency, for example, has to deal with that at one time they probably weren't spending nearly as much time having to deal with. And with finite resources... And finite capacity, of course, it is difficult to do all things well. But I, I think the human dimensions has been a really powerful 
gateway to forcing us as citizens to talk more about the idea of wildlife as a public trust resource. And I think that's a very foundational debate. Well, you've touched on a bunch of really interesting issues that is part of what has brought me to wanting to do this series of podcasts, uh, a bunch of other podcasts and videos I've done this year, have been about bringing science to consumable and digestible pieces. And I look at that just in the community of people I touch through my platforms, but you're, you're talking about human dimensions and you're talking about, uh, you know, you, you, how we have the opportunity for the non-expert to challenge the expert, uh, due to platforms today. Um, we, we all have different life experiences that form our view of the world, form our priorities. So in this process of everybody thinking their opinion matters, which they all do, how do, is it possible or do we need a better informed public on this? And I, I guess you'll have an answer on that, but is that even possible? And if it is possible, how do we get a better informed public so that, yeah, you, you're entitled to your view, you're entitled to your opinion, you can express what your values are, but there are some realities that underpin all this related to the science. And so I'm, I'm wondering, do you think as we have ballot initiatives, we have legislative efforts to craft policy rather than our uh, the historical pattern of state wildlife agencies? How, uh, do, do we need a better informed public? And if so, uh, how do we get there? Well, it's a lot of layers in that question, too. It's an excellent question, Randy. Um, I guess the first thing I would say uh, about an informed public is this. I fundamentally believe that that we have three major problems in conservation surrounding the model, but in conservation generally. Hmm. I'd like um, to hear that. Yeah, and I think the three of them are quite straightforward, and I think they apply everywhere. And uh, and and I will come back to this because it's 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 you know it's directly related to your question of an informed public. I think our three major problems with conservation today are that, number one, too few people care. I agree. We are conducting a podcast for people who care. Yeah. You know, I don't call them the choir because th there's no such thing as a choir. I think that's another ridiculous term, a choir. I just, you know, it's kind of like nuisance bear. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I we don't have a choir. If we've got... <clears throat> 5,000 people listening to this podcast at any point in time. There's 5,000 opinions out there, let me tell you. Right. And so, um, but we have too few people overall in society, but all of those 5,000 people care to some extent or they wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Let me finish that right. thought. But we have too few people in society who really care about this issue of conservation and what happens to wildlife. Of those that do care, they are divided. They are so divided that if it's 20% of the population who care, 
it's not 20% effective for conservation because the 20% are fighting amongst themselves. Right. And the third major problem we have, and I distill all, all problems in conservation, I distill, I distill down to these three, is that we don't have enough money. Right. But conservation if we is expensive. Yes. But it's a tiny cost to the world if we really looked at it. We have too few people who care, and those that care are divided, and that's why we don't have enough money. Because mm -hmm. if more people cared, more politicians, more policies, more legislation, more allocation would actually be made to conservation. So <clears throat> I firmly believe, and something I've tried to do all my life in my career, is to try to reach as many people and to make them care. Yep. Because I think the more that care, number one, is better than fewer. <clears throat> and the second thing I've really tried to do is to build coalitions amongst people to get at this problem of the divisions which consume time and energy and money and often leave the best ideas still on the table because there's not enough buy-in from one right. side or the other to make it happen. And so yep. we end up with excuse the expression often, shitty ideas being enacted, wasteful yep. ideas, inefficient ideas. And all of that chews in to the amount of money that's already insufficient to do what we need to do. So I think we do need a better informed public. But there has been a recent change in societies that is associated with this um, distrust of science and other social perspectives. <clears throat> and that is the politicization of our citizenries. Yep. Now, I do not have to tell any American, I am not an American, and I have no right to make pronouncements on America, and I do not intend to do so. But I know Americans in the Democratic side of things. I know Americans on the Republican side of things. I have good friends in, in, in all those camps. We, we all do, for that matter. Yep. And, but no American citizen is going to argue with me, I don't think, when I say American politics is very divided at the moment. And that, by the way, is also true of Canada, even though many Americans might think Canada is just this vanilla, vanilla state, you know, this boring <laughs> vanilla state where everybody is nice and good. You know, we have very divided politics in Canada as well. And mm -hmm. what that means is not just that people have you know, someone will vote Republican and someone will vote Democrat. What it means is what has changed in my view or what has intensified, Randy, is that these lenses of I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat are more and more starting to determine what my views are on right. a whole range of things. Yes. When the right. parties emerged, you could be Republican in one sense and Democratic in another aspect of your political leanings to some extent. We've seen mm -hmm. that throughout the politics of America and in other yeah. parts of the world. But now more and more, we seem to be getting these rigid positions that if you stand for conservatism, you stand this way. And if you stand for liberalism, or, you know, you stand this way. And conservation is being drawn into this. Oh, yeah. And I have always said, if there is one thing I fear of is, is that we not bring, you know, the standards of politics into conservation. 
but rather we bring the standards of conservation to politics. And unfortunately, I think what's happening is the standards of politics are being brought into conservation more and more. This is not to take sides. This is just to make an observation that that issue is very important. And of course, if you look at the attitudes or impressions or values of primarily Republican voters versus Democratic voters on something like science and whether it's believable and whether you will accept it, you will see even there, to tie these parts of our discussion together, you will see even there very fundamental differences between which group trusts science a little more than the other, even though both right. have many skeptics. Right. So, so I think that we definitely need a better informed audience, uh, Randy, yes, and we definitely need more people who care. But we have to realize as we start to create that informed audience that there are some very significant potential traps along the way that we could invest enormous amounts of time and effort in trying to communicate the value of conservation and have that absorbed and lost as it is absorbed by political viewpoints that in the end does not give us a better informed public, just a more divided one. Yeah. Well, you, you, you said a lot of things there, Shane, that listeners of this podcast have heard from me many, many times. Uh, and I, I say it more tongue in cheek where I'm an equal opportunity supporter and an equal opportunity abuser. I I really don't care where good ideas come from and I don't care where bad ideas originate. I'm here for the, you know, the, the principle of, of, of what we all cherish. Uh, and even I have a very large forum, uh, called hunt talk and, uh, I get accused very often of, uh, not allowing free speech. Well, uh, because someone will come there and post something that is obviously non-factual. Uh, and I think that's the, uh, the other part. Those of us who are communicators, those of us who have platforms, we're always hypersensitive to, well, we don't want to be known as the person who's suppressing ideas. We don't want to be the person who's not an open-minded thinker. But there are some people who take advantage of that and say, oh, I'm going to go there and I'm going to just spread the biggest pile of BS you've ever heard from somebody who's... You know, their previous uh, uh, employment in life, they they couldn't get a job doing anything, so they struck up a a political blog. But somehow that person becomes the expert. So whenever I get rid of that stuff off my platforms and try to sterilize the politics as much as possible, people run and hide behind these facades of free speech or you know open-mindedness or whatever and i think it's it requires leadership on the part of those of us who are communicators to not be afraid of that to to not be afraid to lead we've been blessed to have these platforms so damn it lead Hmm. or let someone else lead and uh you're you've brought together how this model could be either enhanced in a great degree or eroded to a great degree if we want to follow the path uh, the trend you you've observed no one's going to argue (laughs) the the volatility and the 
just viciousness of what American politics has done in the last short while, you know, five to 10 years. So are, are we going to follow the trend of our predecessors and say, you know what, we're above the fray. We're willing to take the arrows and put our principles and our values related to this as the highest priority. And we're not going to worry about R's and D's left and right, you know, liberal conservative. That's where hunters, anglers and the, in the conservation ethic of our combined countries has made such great progress. We, we were willing to hold those as much higher values than whatever our political slant may be. But I do worry about what you pointed out, how, how that is changing. Uh, and uh, I may be answering the question of how do we ensure this. To me, the way we ensure it is those of us who've been vested with a voice, vested with a platform, you know, leadership in organizations that can form opinion and give voice to the causes we love, go out of their way to make sure th- that we don't let this be tainted in a political tone in any way. Well, I think, yes, I mean, I agree with that. And I think um, we also have to be willing to question ourselves, Um, you know, because, you know, conservation is a very complicated piece of business. In my view, it is the most complicated application in the human enterprise. Some people say it's the health health system. Some people say it's education. Some people say it's geopolitics. But the truth of the matter is that in conservation, we are trying to understand the most complicated thing before us, which is the natural world and all its dynamics. <laughs> We're trying to maintain all the cultural diversity on this planet that ultimately relies upon that. We're trying to forestall cataclysms. And let's face it, ever since George Perkins Marsh, we know we've been having detrimental impact on the planet at a certain level of scale, as all species do. But our impact has far outweighed any other species on the planet. No one can deny that. We're on our way towards 10 billion of us from approximately eight. And we know what the consequences of that will be. So, you know, we, we have, we have uh, a real need uh, to get things right. And, and we need to do it in a very fast time. And of course, coming back to the opening part of what this podcast was about, the issue of science and the application of knowledge, we at least have to be open to the knowledge that is out there that we can get our hands on to at least absorb it and to make our own decisions as to whether we want to accept it or not. I mean, in any dimension that we speak about today, you don't just have a gradation of people. You have two lumps often on an issue. Take climate change. You've got people who are vehemently opposed to the idea that it's really happening at all or what's causing it. You get other people over here that sort of indicate that if we don't do something absolutely drastic tomorrow, you know, we're all going to be crispy critters or we're all going to be flooded. So, you know, but the truth of the matter is that we do know that our activities on the planet are having uh, impact, whether it's deforestation, loss of species, overfishing, whatever it might be. So this issue of knowledge and issue of science remains critically important. But the point I want to leave the listeners with is that it also depends on whether one is at least open to accepting the knowledge that is out there and making some effort to get at the knowledge that is available and make an informed decision. And the most important thing to motivate us to do that 
is to have something that extends way beyond our political or even our religious views, in my perspective. And for me, that is wildlife. When I imagine a world without them, the wild others that are out there, and I imagine a world without them, or just a handful of ragtag specimens held up in a bunch of zoos around the world, that is an existence that stands in absolute crystalline, stark contrast to the world we have today. Imagine a world where a child can never hope to go into a feral or even private land or wild land space and have the opportunity to see wild creatures, whether it is eagles or ravens or ground squirrels or elk or grizzly bears or coyotes or whatever it might be, living their lives in the normal circumstance as they has, have always lived since they evolved as species. That should be the image that is before us. And what guides us there ought to be the one true gospel, in my view, for conservationists. That ought to be what we hold up. That is what we fight for. That is what we will not give over. That is what we will not accept seconds on. Every child has the chance, every generation forward-looking as much as I can do to ensure that they will be able to have that experience. Because I'll tell you, the human animal without that experience is nothing. The human animal is just a bunch of maggots, really, tearing away at the heart of this planet without any way of finding itself uplifted to some other kind of existence. And only wild things can give us that. Only wild places can give us that. And so, you know, I don't think, therefore, we're at a stage where some people throw up their hands and say it doesn't matter, you know, some people are going to look at it this way and some people are going to look at it that way and the Democrats are crazy and the Republicans are crazy or this one's crazy or in Canada the Liberals are crazy, the Conservatives are crazy. Look, one of the things I've learned about people, Randy, is that there's a lot of shared common good in people. Yeah. And you have to work with that to find the best solutions for the natural world, just as the women's movement fought to end the millinery trade, you know, just as the well-heeled of the Roosevelt's and company who never had to worry whether they would ever hunt in their lifetime, they had all the resources to do it for the rest of their lives, fought to do something that would be for people, for generations unborn, people like you and me that they would never meet, that they would never know. Yep. And we have to, and we have to abide by this idea that conservation is about citizenship, and where science and knowledge can help us to realize that, uh, we should use it as much as we can. That's that's a great way to to wrap up that part. Uh, uh, I don't know in today's context how I could say it any better as to what role science is going to play in this model. Uh, Thanks for uh, thanks for saying it that way, Shane. Man, now I feel inferior in whatever else I might throw out there. You, you always once you get going, it's like, man, I, I always feel like like one time at the Elk Foundation's annual thing, they made me follow you. So I got to be the MC, and they want me to tell some dad jokes or something. And who precedes me? Shane gets up there, fire and brimstone, and has the audience 
encapsulated in his <laughs> every word. And he gets a rousing standing ovation, and then they're like, oh, and our MC for tonight is Randy Newberg. Everyone went to the restroom. Oh, that's not, that, that, I want to inform your audience that that's not what happened at all. That's not a, that's not true at all. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you for embarrassing well, me. But anyway, <laughs> well, 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 let's let's move on to the second part of this one because I think when you you were bringing forth a bunch of things as you were talking about our countries, uh, the science of how we know that. You know, a lot of people think a migratory waterfall of, of where this really applies, but it applies to a lot of species. It applies to fish. It applies to so many of our species. And that is wildlife is considered an international resource. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe some people don't think about it that way. So I'm hoping in a few quick sentences, can you explain where that has its place in, in the model and, and what we mean by that? I think the simplest way to, to, to think about this is to think about the counterfactual of that, uh, Randy. So let's mm-hmm. imagine that we didn't treat wildlife as an international resource. And, <laughs> right, you, know, you got me right away when you said that. Uh, I'm like, whoa. Right. right. So let, let, let's say that Canada managed waterfowl that moved back and forth between Canada and the United States on its terms and the United States of America you know, managed waterfowl on its terms. So we have a lot of the breeding population, you know, uh, developed in the prairie potholes and other regions of Canada and in the Canadian Arctic. And then, you know, we have a lot of overwintering, of course, of waterfowl in parts of the United States and so on. Now, there are some resident populations of various species, of course, I realize. But just imagine if the two countries were operating in completely different ways with respect to the needs of these organisms. First of all, no one country, except for the few resident animals that stay now because we've given them environments where they can, the vast majority of this incredible, you know, these millions and millions and millions of migratory birds would be finding themselves subject to completely different and non-integrated policies. And obviously, you have to protect the breeding grounds and you have to protect the wintering grounds and the spaces in between to allow these animals to realize their life history and to do it effectively. In addition to that, at times, the problems associated for those migratory species like waterfowl may be, for one reason or another, much greater in their breeding habitats than it is on their wintering grounds or vice versa. And then it means that the two countries have to realize that, well, look, because we share this, we have to start making investments into one another's programs, even when it's not in our country. One of the most amazing things about the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and about what stemmed from the Migratory Birds and Convention Act, and waterfowl is just a component of that, but you know it's the one that a lot of people know about and one a lot of hunters know about because we hunt a lot of waterfowl, is that we reach a point today you know, 1918, approximately, 1618, you know, we had this, the Migratory Bird and Convention Act. So we're here 100 years later. And part of what came out of that, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, which is a, which is a, I mean, it's an emblem for the world in how to do wildlife business. Um, And it's totally integrated with Canada and the United States to the point where American funding is often invested directly into Canadian programs to help build 
you know, the infrastructure necessary to do the massive amount of work that's required to count species at breeding times and so on and so forth, do all of that work so we can get ideas to do the banding earlier that we did to estimate populations and survival and migratory routes to figure out all these flyways that we know we have, these major airports or these major uh, highways in the sky that these, these migratory birds use to get between the two countries and so on and so forth. I mean, if we didn't have that shared phenomenon, this would just be a chaotic assemblage of policies and so on that, that, that ultimately would never be able to look after and properly manage that resource. How many birds do we have in the breeding system versus how many do we have on the wintering grounds? How many that we had on the wintering grounds actually make it back to the breeding grounds? I mean, if we weren't answering those, answering those kinds of questions, if we weren't paying attention to those breeding areas and wintering areas and offering some protection to them, if we didn't have NGOs fighting to maintain the wetlands and marshes and estuarine systems that we need for these birds at different times and coordinating that based on the number of animals that we have and regulating the harvests which occur in both countries on the yep. same species, right, and the same populations really that are moving back and forth, it would be absolute bloody chaos. Instead of that, we have this North American waterfowl management plan based on this idea of these animals as international resources moving back and forth that has really been, it's, it's, it's a miracle is what it is. It's just an astounding achievement on behalf of the two countries. But bear in mind that Canada and the United States had international agreements on species even before the Migratory Birding Convention Act. The Fur really? Seal Treaty that was signed between Canada, the United States, Japan, and other countries, Russia, and so on. I mean, that predated the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. So I did Canada, not know that. Canada and the United States have been involved in this business of, and they were for marine species, obviously. But this was a, this was a, this is a, a, a long-standing awareness and sensitivity by Canada and the United States to develop these international treaties that in many cases took places in Europe, you know, 50, 75, 100 years later to actually bring things in with the formation of the EU and, you know, other, other political changes that took place. Obviously, this doesn't just reply to species either that move long distances. You can have bears or elk or deer or other species that move you know, bison that used to move across the boundaries of the two countries and so on and so forth. And it also says to me, one of the things that I always took from this idea of an international resource, in a way to me, and we did not articulate this in the book, and I wish I had written more about this, but to me it was kind of the idea of public trust at a global scale. You know, we have in each yeah. of our countries this idea of a public trust and that Randy and Shane as citizens, like all other citizens, you know, we, we own the wildlife, essentially. The wildlife is ours in collectivity. No one owns it individually, but as collectives, as nations, we, we have it. And I always saw these international agreements as sort of one of the first steps towards globalization. You know, yeah. that people identified that these animals... They, were, they superseded our little geopolitical boundaries and our <laughs> politics and all of that, right? And, right. And, and to do good for the world, we had to begin to take this kind of global view. And I really saw it as a kind of public trust doctrine on steroids 
this idea of wildlife as an international resource. And now we see it, you know, as the birds move from the African continent into Europe and back again. We have lots of agreements there. And we have agreements in other parts of the world with respect to this and agreements between countries within the European Union and so forth. And it really has made an enormous difference. But psychologically, I think in addition to this idea of the public trust doctrine that is at at the national level, being on steroids at this international level, I think also this idea of wildlife as an international resource has reminded us that we too are a global species. You know, we, yeah. we originated, you know, we, we, we originated in Africa. We came out of Africa 60 to 70,000 years ago. We spread westward to the edges of the Atlantic in, in, in Western Europe. We, we moved east and went all around the world, came into North America through, you know, through, uh, through Russia, through Beringia, the, the great, the great uh, land bridge, you know, uniting Alaska and Siberia. We came in, we went down the margins of the continent, went south of the ice sheets and north of them and so on, and eventually, you know, populated the continent. But we populated all continents. We reached, you know, Australia probably 60,000 years ago now, we believe, and so on. So we, too, are a species that has, we are an international species, aren't we? We are now everywhere. And so (laughs) it was, to me, also, as I read it first, kind of, It was another example for me of how we and they, by we, the human species and the wild others of the planet, share something else in common, that we are universal, that we are global, and that just as with them, we have to find ways to cooperate too, don't we? Our trade systems and our economic systems, our food production systems, uh, you know, sharing insights in medical science and doing all these things. In a way, humans are an international resource. And so I think this idea of wildlife being seen as an international resource was just a beautiful, thoughtful, insightful, nonpartisan. It just represented the best in everyone. And when America, the United States of America and Canada could on so many fronts, the model generally, you know, just the fact that the two countries share so much about this is phenomenal. Canada should have followed Britain. Canada didn't follow Britain. It followed the United States. Uh, And then that we could forge these major programs uh, for the internationality of wildlife that flew or swam, you know, across our boundaries, the great whales that, you know, feed off our coast here in Newfoundland in the summertime and then, shift all the way back and go back to places like Florida and other places in the Gulf there to, you know, to spend their time and to calve and so on and so forth. I mean, this is just a, I mean, well, it's, it's just an extraordinary thing. And to think, Randy, that we did it over a hundred years ago is That's amazing. It's freaking incredible, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's just absolutely yeah, amazing. You're, as you're talking about these things, there's so many things in my life that, have benefited from that that I never really gave much thought to uh, as you're taught until maybe I have, but as you were talking, they started going through my mind. You know, does does a salmon out of the Columbia River make any distinction in what its needs are for, you know, a healthy aquatic environment out in the North Pacific any more than a, 
the salmon that comes out of the Fraser River. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> they're yeah. two different countries, but it's species that are dependent upon the same habitats that could be overexploited by one country versus the other because the, it's not like the salmon that come out of the Copper River of Alaska when they return to the Pacific know if they're in international waters, U.S. waters, Canadian waters. Um, and then where I grew up, you know, it, it, it's very obvious to me now. Uh, I grew up on the Minnesota-Canadian-Ontario-Canadian border and where the Rainy River leaves Rainy Lake and dumps into Lake of the Woods. Uh, the Rainy River was a just spectacular fishery. Uh, through, you know. And then both sides of the of the border took on uh very industrial activities uh at the lowest possible cost which usually meant the highest environmental degradation uh and so people were like i I still remember being a kid going to birchdale which is a popular fishing site and there was a sign do not eat these fish i'm like what walleyes I, i can't eat walleyes and so obviously that's not good that's an indicator the species isn't doing well the the native sturgeon who were really suffering uh from uh mostly paper mills uh, on both sides uh well it took a lot of collaboration between the two countries just the two the province and the states of minnesota and ontario but that is now being cleaned up Mm -hmm. and the sturgeon are returning in great numbers and you can see the age class and just the length of the sturgeon getting bigger. They have collaborative agreements about harvest, about water quality. And uh, who's the beneficiaries? The all, all the residents of both provinces, but also the, the fish and other species that depend on those fish of the Rainy River. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, when you think about yeah, this... I, When you think about it, too, from the point of view of food procurement, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, hunting and angling, you know, do bring in a great deal of food. And that food is enjoyed by by citizens in both Canada and the United States, as we're talking about here, the North American theater. And um, how unfair would it be? But certainly lots of injustices occur in the world. But how unfair would it be for one country with these migratory species, you know, to, you know, to sort of gobble it all up and and, yeah. and, and, to, and to take that away from other people in another country, which are, which is, which country is also providing something essential in the life cycle of that, of that wildlife. I mean, that would be a completely unjust <laughs> process. So I think these, these international agreements really showed us how justice could could operate and you know while that was done at an international level we also have examples of where you know obviously there's great cooperation for people you know between provincial or between state jurisdictions too right because animals also move within their countries across geopolitical boundaries yeah which is, which, you know there's lots of examples of that too yeah, there are there are a lot of examples of that. I could go back again to that same exact place where, you know, the Mississippi River forms part of the border between Wisconsin and Minnesota, and they had to work on a joint fishing arrangement. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what are the season dates? What are the allowed yeah. harvest? Are there slot limits necessary? Yeah. So anytime you have wildlife, 
uh, that moves like humans do. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm thankful that we have a model that recognizes that. And I think in some ways it forces us to express our shared values uh, between countries, between states, whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, you look at the Migratory Bird Convention uh, Treaty Act. That is an expression of two countries that have a shared value about habitat, about these birds, about, and not just the waterfowl, but like you said, the full cadre of migratory birds. Uh, mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, it, it's it's great that we have legislation, that we have models that are are forcing us to express where we have these common values instead of just saying, ah, oh, this is, you know, damn Americans, damn Canadians, damn, you know, Mexico, whatever it might be. Um, probably the one place where I just, maybe it's a familiarity issue for me, uh, but I'm not familiar with a lot of uh, treaties uh, that involve Mexico. Uh, and I'm not saying they don't exist. It's just, you know, that's another another country on the continent that oftentimes I think we fail to, to talk about. Yeah. Uh, we look at, you know, jaguar conservation. We look at Mexican wolf conservation. We look at a lot of our, our bird species who are so dependent upon m- habitat in Mexico. Uh, I... I don't know. Maybe there is enough uh, consideration given, and I'm just not aware of it. Uh, well, in terms of the, the the Migratory Birding Convention Act, there's a lot of more integration now than than there was. But I think this is another very interesting issue, um, and it's an important one to to raise <clears throat> because we call it the North American model, of course. Mm-hmm. But you know, pretty much 95 percent of all that's ever talked about is is Canada and the United States, right? Yeah. Um, And so in that sense, almost every conversation is exclusionary, even though it's not intended to be, is exclusionary of the other component of the continent, which is a very extraordinarily biodiversity-rich country, Mexico, and which is a country, too, that has uh, many of the same challenges and, you know, that we have and also has a cadre of professionals who work very hard to conserve wildlife in that country. And it's very interesting that um, there have been, you know, increasing uh, efforts at dialogue to try to, you know, strengthen the, the, um, the relationships around the tenets of the North American model within the Mexican context and between Mexico and Canada and the United States. Obviously, the contiguous border here is mostly between, uh, well, the border is entirely between Mexico and the United States. But that's where a lot of the likelihood of movement of wildlife and so on occurs across that border. I think there's a lot of room, and I'm certainly involved in discussions with a lot of people from Mexico who are very interested in seeing you know, this tied in more. And it has brought a much greater sensitivity in my mind to every time we say North American model that we are, we should be talking about three countries and we're fundamentally and primarily talking about two. But this only gives us, in a way, an opportunity to continue the momentum that was built around the model that more energetically embraced Canada and the United States at the time. 
Um, and I think that there is a lot of room for us to expand this internationality of the North American model uh, and, and have much broader and much more meaningful discussions and exchanges with Mexico at the academic level, at the research level, at the funding level, at the migratory species level, etc. And we have to recognize, though, that, of course, there are cultural differences. You know, there are land use differences and, and so on and so forth uh, between uh, all three countries, for that matter. But certainly between Mexico and uh, the United States and uh, and Canada, and but none of that prevents us from building stronger bridges and stronger ties, and this issue of internationality, of course, is one of the best ways to look at that. Species that move between our three countries really ought to be those that could form one of the really strong pillars for cooperation and greater integration of Mexico within the North American model, if you will, if that, of course, is the choice of the country uh, to actually do that. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if this applies. We're, we're kind of getting close to the end here, but I don't know enough about other continents and how they manage their wildlife. And, you know, would they laugh at the idea of a wildlife held in trust for its citizens? Is it privately owned? You know, what, where their priorities are. Uh, but has, has a similar type of international uh, agreement been struck uh, in other countries where you have migratory birds, migratory terrestrial wildlife, migratory fish, shared aquatic, you know, rivers, whatever it might be? Or, yeah. do, do you see that going on in oh, other yes. parts of the world? Yeah, yeah, it definitely okay. is. I mean, the European water bird agreement and so on. There are a number of examples of where these international treaties and agreements have, have been developed. It is interesting to reflect on them in the sense to see, you know, how relatively recently they have come compared with what took place in within the context of the model and things like the uh, the first seal treaty, as I mentioned, and then, of course, somewhat later, the Migratory Bird Treaty and Convention Act. Um, I mean, uh, but nevertheless, yes, I mean, because the principle remains sound, doesn't it, Randy? I mean, if, if, if wildlife is international crossing, you know, South America and North America or between Canada and the United States, then it's international too when it moves from, from, from right. you know, Africa across the Mediterranean and into, into European countries, et cetera, et cetera, or animals that move in some cases from the African continent even into northern parts of more eastern regions of Asia or Russia, et cetera. I mean, I think that the, um, what we can say is that some of the lessons that we learned in the North American model, you know, have arisen and been played out in other circumstances. But there are also other circumstances in the world where very different models uh, and approaches to the conservation of wildlife have arisen and have occurred. But that's the strength of the global community. I mean, no one model is going to be perfect for every cultural dimension. And this comes back to our right. ideas of science and emotionality and, and human dimensions and so on. You cannot take the human culture and the human sense of identity out of any of these pictures. They are, it is there. It's a color in the tapestry. And what will be acceptable in some countries as a formulation for conservation simply might not be acceptable at all in another country because of cultural imperatives that 
are quite different. And so, um, but I, but I do believe, and this is part of the reason why now in a sort of analogous way, you know, I'm trying to take the North American model to the international community as a kind of another way of internationalizing issues (laughs) of wildlife in the sense of saying, you know, uh, here is a model that has had, you know, successes, it, it has, you know, it's not perfect. It possibly could be improved. It is part of a dynamic social environment. But at least here is something we can show you. This is what we tried. This is what happened. We did rescue wildlife. We built big economies. We have, in fact, uh, had sustainable food sources for millions of harvesters over a very long period of time. It has benefited game, yes, but also non-game species. It's elicited enormously powerful and complex legislative protections for wildlife at many, many, many levels. So here is something really fundamental that you can look at. And maybe some of those things can be borrowed. Something like wildlife is an international resource. I'm sure that the people who are developing those international agreements for waterfowl in other parts of the world are highly aware and have studied (laughs) the Migratory Bird and Convention Act of Canada and the United States. Um, or the issue that best knowledge and science should be applied for the study of wildlife. I mean, I think, you know, already we have some of these principles, I believe, of the North American model that are shared, implemented, and exercised by other regions of the world already. Well, I I thought that would probably be the case. I don't know how else you would solve some of this stuff, but I also know if I was going to ask someone that question, I'd be calling Shane Mahoney. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to give the little bit of knowledge I have, Randy. Believe me, but uh, there's, it's, there's, there's it's a lot immense. of there's a lot of knowledge to learn. Well, to acquire. I, I I think what we'll do with this, Shane, uh, uh, you got anything more you want to add on on either of these two? Because the the next podcast that I want to kind of put together here would combine the the two topics of the markets for game we we pretty much eliminated the markets for for at least meat and and certain other things related to game uh and then we also within that that model there's one of the tenants that says wildlife can only be killed for legitimate purposes i think it's it's good to combine those two but before we jump on to that and we get into podcast three later on uh anything else you want to add to to these two topics no, no, I, mean, I, mean, I think we've 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 covered a lot of the a lot of the core elements um i do think that um we need to spend a bit uh more time as a movement as a conservation movement uh, trying to really get the opinions of people on the ground and I mention this because we have in this discussion of science and the discussion of you know, international agreements, we immediately touch on two components in society. One is the academic or research you know, kind of, of component of the science. And the yeah. other is we touch upon the kind of legislative and political levels to, you know, to draft, obviously, these international kinds of agreements and to... And, and to not just recognize wildlife as an international resource, but to manage it as such. But, you know, one of the things I have tried to do, I have, I have worked in government. I've had strong academic connections. I've published a lot of peer-reviewed science on my 
yeah, predator-prey work with caribou and bears and my seabird work and so on. And I've written a lot in the policy space about these issues that you and I have been discussing in these podcasts and will continue to discuss in this series. But one of the things I have always tried to do, which has been often different from my governmental or academic colleagues, is I have also tried to spend a lot of time in the, in the space of the citizen user of the resource. I have made a lot of effort throughout my career, and if you reflect on it, I, I think the pattern will be seen, of engaging with, for example, hunter and angler-based organizations, the actual users of the resource, not in a, in a sporadic way, but in an energetic way. I have a lot of partners in that space. I have spoken many times at their conventions. I have you know, given assistance where I can on various things that we've requested. I have written for their magazines. I have, you know, I, I've, just, I've, I've made it a purposeful effort on my part not to be just a policy governmental uh, you know, person, not to be just somebody who publishes science, but to really work with you know, what in some vernaculars would be said, the common citizen or the common man, the common woman, whatever we, we might want to use mm -hmm. as a term. And I, I believe that that is too rare. And I believe it is extremely important. Um, and I believe that, so two things I would say just to close out this podcast. One is that I think we need science, but we need the local and experiential knowledge of people to be brought into the equations for the best understanding and to develop the best policies. And the second thing is that those of us who do work in the scientific realm, who you know do publish books and you know monographs on on conservation and do things in that world, we need to we need to bring that knowledge or that information that we have acquired that we spent our lives working on to the communities that of people who actually are living and exercising, working with and utilizing these resources. And that is often looked down upon, Randy. You know, scientists getting out there in the messy public sphere, you know, that, that can be viewed as, you know, grandstanding or it can be viewed as, you know, letting down your standards in some way because, you know, you should, you should only breathe the rare air, you know, of the academic world or whatever that might be. And, you know, Kissinger had it right when he talked about all of that because, you know, he said, you know, the, the, the reason that the, the, the battles in academic institutions are so intense, essentially, he said, is that the, you know, uh, what's at stake is so low. You know, <laughs> and so you know, I, I, but I, I make this, but I, but I make this point very seriously that you know that what we 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 really need to try to to make information and knowledge something that flows through all of society and at all levels, and you know, some people, some people, when I have written things or you know, giving people an idea of what I'm going to speak in a lecture, they'll say, oh, you know, you, should, you shouldn't write and use those terms or you shouldn't speak at that level, you know, when you're speaking to general audiences. That's okay for the academic audience. And that has been an infuriating thing for me in my, over my entire life. You know, I'm an enormous fan of philosophy and a big reader of it. And I've told many philosophers at universities in congenial ways that I've learned as much philosophy at the head of a wharf speaking to old Newfoundland fishermen as I've learned anywhere. <laughs> and, 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 and I really fundamentally believe that. And I have never changed my rhetoric on this podcast, 
how I choose to express myself, the ideas I choose to bring forward, the language that I use is not one iota different than the language I would use speaking before an academic audience or speaking before a professional or a governmental or a legislative body. And I frankly find it insulting to, to suggest that I, you know, that any of us in talking to, you know, the, the rural people or the people on the ground or the users of the resource, however we define the community, mm-hmm. should try to communicate these ideas in any other way. I have never encountered a problem with an audience understanding what I'm trying to say or at least getting a basic good feeling about what I am trying to say. And I think that, therefore, the idea that science belongs to scientists and that, you know, international policy belongs to policy wonks or elected officials, I just think we need to break that down entirely, Randy, and treat human beings as human beings and realize that, you know, if there's one problem that the human species does not have, and God knows we got enough of them, but if there's one problem we don't have is a lack of intelligence. Human beings are incredibly intelligent animals, and we can afford to distribute and communicate any idea with each and every human being on this planet. And so I would only make that comment about this tie between knowledge and managing wildlife and the role of science, that we are all in this together. And it's the shared knowledge that will allow us to advance. And uh, science is not the domain of anybody specifically in the world. It's the domain of everybody. Oh. Well, I, I'm not going to ask for anything better than that, Shane. Uh, that was, uh, no, I, I think that's very helpful. And to a lot of people who who probably at times feel that there's the academia world that, oh, we've got our place where we talk and the rest of you, in spite of a lifetime of experiences out on landscapes or out on the water, maybe sometime are discounted. Uh, your advocacy for all of that to be shared uh, I think it's super powerful to to yeah. the cause that that knowledge isn't just you know the 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 domain of any single person or any single group. So oh, besides Randy, who let me give, let me ask you if you had these two pictures in your mind of a you know a b- bunch of academics sitting around you know in their austere offices looking at their papers you know stacked this high and talking to a community of two. Um, and compare that with a with a, a, a group of people in their rural pub uh, singing it up and and sharing a few pints and talking about their experiences fishing or hunting or you know who do you think's having the best time here? I mean, I, come I, on! I can assure you, coming from a small logging family <laughs> exactly. where the pub was, was the place where a lot of hunting stories and fishing stories got told, uh, I, I know who's having the best time. <laughs> that, 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 damn right. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Shane, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let the folks go for now, but, uh, just know we're going to have another podcast, probably be episode number three that covers, uh, the markets for game being eliminated. And then, the, you know, the tenant that says if, if we're going to take wildlife, it has to be for a legitimate purpose. So, 
appreciate it, Jane. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for being here, and uh, hope you're you're enjoying these. And if you if you are, I hope you uh, you'll send us some feedback. Uh, you can reach me on social media, or you can send to contact at randynewberg.com. Uh, we got people who who take that stuff, and uh, people may not know this, Shane, but every one of those emails gets read at our office, and they get put in folders of stuff, and that's what develops a lot of the topics that we talk about or that we we produce across our platforms. So, uh, oh, good for you, good for you. Yeah. Well, so, I look and, and if they're if they're really difficult questions, I, I have your email address, Shane. I'm going to send them to you <laughs> or to Amanda. <laughs> That's all good, man. I appreciate it. And I will uh, I'll look forward to the next podcast, Randy, very much. Thank you. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Yeah. All the best. Keep the faith. When the sun came shining and I was strolling And the leaf fields waving and the dust clouds rolling As the fog was lifting, a voice was chatting For you